As we get ready to dive in tonight's message, I pray and I hope that it will be beneficial to you as we continue on and just bringing forth God's word uh, during this time. So as we get ready to dive in tonight, make sure that you have your Bibles with you, you've got something to write with, and now let's dive into tonight's message. Hey, what's going on, friends? Thank you guys so much for tuning in to these weekly teachings. I know that things are a little bit different right now uh, since we're in this whole COVID thing, but let me just tell you how much I appreciate you guys being consistent with just keeping up to date with everything that's going on with this ministry during this time. But tonight, just so you guys know, we are kicking off a new series. And this series we've titled Unbelievable. And you might have already guessed, based off of the bumper video before this, uh, that we're going to be looking for the next few weeks at some of the unbelievable yet true stories that we find in the Bible. Now, there's a lot of people that they question whether or not the Bible can be trusted or whether or not the stories in the Bible are real. And a lot of that has to do because, well, simply what we find in there are stories that, man, they, they really do seem to be unbelievable. I mean, is it possible that a man can really survive all night in a den of hungry lions just to make it out alive the next day with not a scratch on him? Is it possible that three guys could be thrown into a fiery furnace and then make it out alive and not even smell like smoke? Is it really possible that a sea can split in half so an entire nation can walk across on dry ground escaping slavery from the most powerful empire during this time? Is it really possible that the entire world could be covered with a flood? And is it really all that possible that God could use a donkey to verbally speak to its owner to save him from what seemed to be certain death? Can any of these things actually happen? Can any of these events actually be true that we find in the, in the Bible? Because the question is that they are all really unbelievable, aren't they? But unbelievable stories grab our attention all the time. You see, this is the reason why movies based on true story captivate the audience. Because we can watch those movies and we can see how those, how those amazing things uh, took place. And we can sit there and we can ask ourselves, Man, if it could happen for that person, if it can happen for that couple, if it can happen for that group of people, maybe, just maybe, it could happen for people like you and me. So I thought to kick off this series that it would actually be fun to start by looking at some stories that seem totally unbelievable, but all of them are actually true. The first one is a story, it's a 
about a guy by the name of Brian Grayson. Brian was told in 2011 that he was diagnosed with stage four bone and lung cancer. Now the doctor told Brian that the chances of him living long enough to see the year 2012 were, were very unlikely. Yet on January 7th of this year, 2020, Brian posted online that he was now cancer free. Unbelievable, but true. How about this one? Most people look forward to their birthday. I just celebrated my 32nd birthday last week. But not many of us get to celebrate a birthday twice in one year. Well, Jeff McFadden shares that on the last day of the Vietnam War, he was in Vietnam, and on the last day, he turned 21. He then hopped onto a plane to make it back to America, crossing the international date line, which then turned him back to the age of 20. He then landed in the Seattle-Tacoma airport, where he was once again celebrating his 21st birthday. Unbelievable, but it's true. How about this one? Fred was riding his bike with his daughter on Friday the 13th when a black cat scurried across the road that they were riding on. Now his daughter looks at him and starts telling him about how that is a sign of bad luck. But as Fred is in the process of telling his daughter how that's all silly superstition, a bee flew into his mouth, stinging him on the back of the throat. Unbelievable, but it's true. Now, I'm sure that if we spent time thinking about it, we all have our own unbelievable yet true stories that no matter how many times you share it with somebody or if you did share it with somebody, they wouldn't believe you. So I thought that I would share one of mine with you. Now, last week, I told you guys about the interview process that I went through with this church where this junior high girl asked me a simple but yet mind-blowing question. That question was, if you had to describe Jesus in one word, what would that word be? Would that one word be? Well, in 2015, I was in the process of interviewing with another church, and this church was out in Connecticut. Now, during this interview process, I started falling in love with what the church was doing, and I really uh, came to respect the senior pastor of that church. And as the interview process was going on, Melissa and I, who we were engaged to be married at that time, we began asking ourselves the question, man, could we really see ourselves moving from Colorado to Connecticut? Is that really something that one we can see ourselves doing? Is that really something that God was calling us to do at this time? Well, the church flew us to Connecticut off of our honeymoon, believe it or not. And they, they flew us out there so we could visit the location and we could meet some of the people that were a part of the church in order to help us make the decision whether or not God was calling us out there. Now, as we were flying out there, I began playing this little game with God that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, and you've probably played it with God as well. And it was the question of, man, God, if you really want us to do this, then you'll X, Y, Z, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Well, as we're flying into Connecticut, I began playing that game with God, and I said, God, man, if you're really calling Melissa and I to Connecticut, this is what I want to see happen. We're so close to Boston, I want to go to Boston, and I want to go to Fenway. I want to see the baseball park. Now, this was a quick trip, so I knew that there was no way that it was going to be possible that we were going to go to Boston, and let alone go see Fenway. 
But as we got off the plane and we made it to our hotel, there was a gift basket in the hotel waiting for us in our hotel room from the church. And attached to that gift basket was an itinerary of what our uh, trip was going to look like. And on that itinerary was a trip to Boston. Now, do you want to take a guess what we did in Boston? We went to Fenway. We went to a baseball game. We went to go see the Boston Red Sox take on the Detroit Tigers. So you would think that that's where the game would have stopped, but as many of you who play this game know, that's never how it goes. So I continued the game. So what I then began to say to God was, God, if you really want Melissa and me to move to Connecticut, this is what I want to see happen. I want to see Big Poppy, David Ortiz, hit a home run. Now, I kid you not, David Ortiz comes up to bat, and he hits a home run. Now, again, you think that would be all the evidence that I need, right? But no, because you see, David Ortiz, this is what he does for a living. He hits home runs. So I sat there and I said, man, God, we could just kind of chalk that one up to a coincidence, right? Uh, let's, let's get a little bit more specific. God, if you really want Melissa and I moving to Connecticut and being a part of this church and what it is that they're doing, then I want to see somebody hit a baseball over the green monster. Now, I'm not going to just sit here and assume that all of you are baseball fanatics like I am. Uh, so I have a picture of you for the green monster. And you see the green monster is this massive wall in the outfield of Fenway, which makes it nearly impossible for a baseball player to hit a home run over that wall. Now, it does happen from time to time, but like I said, it's nearly impossible. And I kid you not, a player comes up to bat for the Red Sox, and the next thing I know, he's hitting a home run over the green monster. Now, again, I would love to tell you guys that that's where the game between God and I stopped, but if I were to be honest with you, this game that I was playing with God continued on for a few more days, and each and every time, God came through. He didn't have to, but he did. The game came to a conclusion when I had the privilege to call the senior pastor and let him know that, hey, I think God is calling us to Connecticut, this newly married couple, and we're excited to come alongside you guys and be a part of what you're doing out there. You guys, that's an unbelievable but true story. Now, as of right now, we are in the middle of Holy Week. We are just a few short days away from Easter Sunday. It's the day that we as Christians, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. It's a great, great day. Uh, but the resurrection of Jesus proves to the world once and for all that Jesus is exactly who he said that he is, that he is God. But yet still today, many people are conflicted whether or not that they can believe and trust that Jesus is exactly who he says that he is. Now, in 2015, the Barna Group did a study. They asked millennials five questions about what they believed about Jesus. And these were the five questions. The first question they asked was if they believed that Jesus was a real person who actually lived. And 87% of those that they asked, again, millennials, came back and said, yeah, I really believe that Jesus was a person who really existed and he really lived. That's a pretty good number. But the questions continued. The second question that they asked was, who do they believe that Jesus was? 48% believed that Jesus was God. 35% said that Jesus was only a religious or spiritual leader. And 17% were really unsure what 
or who they believed Jesus was. The next question that they asked was if Jesus committed sins like any other person. And this is where things get a little staggering to me. Because 56%, greater than 56% of those that they interviewed believed that Jesus sinned just like every other person. And uh, only 21% disagreed strongly. They are, I'm sorry, 24% disagreed strongly saying, no, Jesus was a sinless man. But again, the questions didn't stop there. The fourth thing that they asked millennials was if they had made a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And only 46% of those that they asked said, yes, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And then the final question that they asked was this, what do you believe will happen to you when you die? Because all of us are destined to die, right? 56% of the millennials that they asked believe that they will go to heaven because they had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that Jesus was their Lord and Savior. You guys, these are people that you know, right? These are your friends, these are your coworkers, these are your neighbors, possibly even your family members. And when you start putting names and faces to those numbers, you understand that they're no longer just numbers and they're no longer just percentages, but that these are people that you actually know, which means that those numbers and those statistics become a little bit more real. They become uh, a, a little bit of frightening and kind of leaves you in this little bit of unbelief. Because why? Well, it hits a little bit closer to home than you thought. So why is there so much conflict and unbelief that Jesus is who he says that he is? Well, as this whole series is titled, because really a lot of the stuff that Jesus did is simply unbelievable. And I'm not just talking about the miracles that Jesus performed. I'm talking about the, the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now, the reason why I say that is because really the miracles that Jesus performed aren't enough to prove that he is God. And now some of you might be surprised that I would say that, but it's true. I mean, if you look at the entirety of the Bible, the Bible is filled with people who did miraculous things. We have Moses who parted the Red Sea. You have Elijah who called fire down from heaven. And then Peter alone, one of Jesus' disciples, not only did he walk on water, but we see in the book of Acts where he healed a lame man. So the Bible is full of stories of people who did miraculous things before and after Jesus. And now look, I know as much as you guys do that these guys, they didn't do any of that off of their own power, that they were only able to do that because God was working through them. But again, the Bible proves time and time again that the miracles would not have been enough to prove that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he was God. It was going to have to take him doing something a little bit more, a little bit different than what anybody else could have done. It was going to have to take him fulfilling prophecies. But the prophecies, right, the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, they weren't really all that important or that difficult to do, were they? Well, check out this short video on the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Does prophecy confirm that Jesus is the Messiah? In his book, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell writes, the Old Testament, written over a 1,000 year period, contains nearly 300 references to the coming Messiah, and all of these were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they also establish a solid confirmation of his credentials as the Messiah. Now, to help understand the significance of Jesus' fulfillment of these prophecies, Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, offers a compelling example. He hypothetically figures what the chances are of Jesus fulfilling only eight 
of these prophecies. He claims the odds are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Now that would be 1 followed by 17 zeros. Now to help you retain this mind-boggling statistic, Stoner illustrates it by describing 10 to the 17th power in silver dollars by picturing them spread out over the entire state of Texas. The amount is so vast that it would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Then Stoner says, now mark one of the silver dollars, stir them all up and blindfold a man and tell him he can go wherever he wishes, but he can only pick one. The chances of the blindfolded man has of picking the marked silver dollar is the same chances that the prophets had of writing out eight prophecies that would be actualized in Jesus. This not only validates Jesus as the Messiah, but it gives credence to the credibility of God's inspired word. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. If the odds of fulfilling eight prophecies seem staggering, imagine the math on nearly 300. You guys, from that video, we see that the odds were stacked against Jesus from fulfilling all the prophecies. And what that video was showing us was that the odds were stacked against him with fulfilling at least just eight of them. But we know that Jesus fulfilled nearly 300 prophecies about himself. So what were some of those prophecies? Well, some of those prophecies revolved around his birth. You see, it was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born that the Messiah would be born to a virgin, that the Messiah would come from the line of King David, that the Messiah would grow up in the little town of Nazareth. Now imagine if Jesus was just another regular person like you and me, man, how could he fulfill some of those prophecies? much like the one of being born of a virgin. It would have been out of his control. But yet, the other prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, they uh, revolved around his betrayal, his trial, his death, and his resurrection. And like I said, we're in the middle of Holy Week right now. This is a sweet, sweet time for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. So I thought for the rest of our time, this evening that we would spend the time looking at some of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled within Holy Week alone. And we start with Palm Sunday. You see, this past Sunday was Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday marks the time where Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. And it's, the, it's recorded in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, Mark 11, 1 through 11, Luke 19, 28 through 44, and John 12, 12 through 19. But hundreds of years prior to that triumphal entry, it was prophesied that the Messiah would do such a thing in Zechariah 9.9, and this is what it says. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now you might be saying to yourself, Okay, that's all well and good. So Jesus read Zechariah and he knew to do this. All right, I'll give you that. What about the next day on Monday? The following day, Jesus and his disciples come back into Jerusalem and they start making their way to the temple. And what Jesus and his disciples witness in this moment is that they notice that people are buying and selling sacrificial animals for the upcoming Passover. 
Now, that's not so much the problem. The problem was that people were making a profit off of the items, the sacrificial items that they were selling. You guys, you see, Passover was never something that you were supposed to make a profit off of. It was a holy day. So the event that now takes place that we're looking at is something is an event that a lot of us are familiar with. It's the event where Jesus gets really ticked off and he starts flipping over tables and he starts chasing off the people that are selling doves, that they're thieving and they're cheating people in this temple. And we see evidence, or we see this event take place in Matthew 21, verses 12 to 22, Mark 11, 15, 19, Luke 19, 45 through 48, and John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But again, this moment was prophesied. Psalm chapter 69, 9 says, Because zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Again, this is written hundreds of years before the event of the cleansing of the temple. But again, I'm guessing that you still aren't all that convinced. So let's fast forward in the week. Let's go to Thursday. Now, last week, as we concluded the known series, we looked at this event of the Last Supper where Jesus was sharing a meal, a Passover meal with his disciples, and he does this fascinating thing where he takes the position of a servant, he picks up a wash base and a towel, and he starts washing his disciples' feet. But at this dinner is one of his disciples that has already made this decision that he is going to betray Jesus. That disciple, Judas. Judas had already decided that he was going to betray Jesus, and this was an event that was prophesied. Psalm 41, 9 says, Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who I ate my bread, or one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. And you guys, Judas decided to betray Jesus, and he comes up with the Pharisees together with this price as to what it was going to cost to betray Jesus. And even the cost to betray Jesus was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. And that cost 30 pieces of silver. So let's move on to Friday. Now this is Good Friday. Good Friday, we're celebrating this upcoming Friday. And the, pro- the Bible prophesied that the Messiah would be falsely accused. Psalm 35, 11, Malicious witnesses come forward. They question me about things that I do not know. And in Mark chapter 14, verses 57 through 58, we see where the religious elite, the Pharisees, they pull in these false witnesses to throw these accusations against Jesus. Prophecy fulfilled. How about this one? The Bible said that the Messiah would be silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. And Mark 15, 4 through 5 says this. Pilate questioned him again. Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. Verse 5, but Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. How about this prophecy? The Messiah would be spat upon and struck. Isaiah 56, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. And Matthew 26, 67 says, then they spat in his face and beat him. And others 
slapped him. How about this prophecy? The Messiah would be hated without cause. Psalm 35, 19. Do not let my deceitful enemies rejoice over me. Do not let those who hate me without cause wink at me maliciously. Psalm 69, 4. Those who hate me without cause are more numerous than the hairs of my head. My deceitful enemies who would destroy me are powerful. Though I did not steal, I must repay. And we see evidence of those who are hating Jesus for doing nothing wrong in John 15, verses 24 through 25. How about this one? The Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm twenty-two sixteen says, For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers had closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. You guys, this is written by David hundreds of years before the idea of a crucifixion had even come about. So how would they know? How would David have known to write that? How about this one? The Messiah would be crucified with criminals. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, as he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. And we see in Matthew 27, verse 38, and Mark 15 and 27, that on both sides of Jesus, to his left and to his right, were criminals that he was crucified with. But it doesn't stop there. Another prophecy, it says that the soldiers would gamble for the Messiah's garments. Psalm 22, 18 says, They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. And Matthew 27, 35 says, After crucifying him, Jesus, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Now how about this one? This one's kind of a crazy one. The Bible prophesied that the Messiah's bones would not be broken. Now, some of you may not know this, but the way that a person would die on the cross wasn't from the trauma that they experienced, but it was actually through suffocation. You see, what would happen is the Roman soldiers would place nine-inch nails through each hand and through the feet of the individual, and as they hoisted them up, the body would collapse upon itself, causing the person to suffocate. So then the person who is hanging on the cross would then have to push up off their feet, up through the nail that's going through their feet, to take in a breath of fresh air before collapsing back upon themselves and beginning the suffocating process again. You guys, this was a process that could go on for days at a time. So to speed up the process, what the Roman soldiers would do, a practice that they adopted, would be that they would come and they would break the shins of those who were crucified so they could no longer push up on that nail to get that breath of fresh air. This was a known common practice. Psalm 34, 20 says this. It says, He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And John 19, 33 tells us, that when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. How about this one? This might be the, a real heartbreaking one. But the Messiah would be forsaken by God. Psalm 22, 1, David writes, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from 
my deliverance and, and from my words of groaning. In Matthew 27, 46, we see Jesus quote and say similar words when he says this. It says in uh, Matthew 27, 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? How about this prophecy? The soldiers would pierce the Messiah's side. Zechariah 12.10 says, And they will look at me with whom they pierced. How about John 19.34? It says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. How about this one? The Messiah would be buried with the rich. Isaiah 53.9 He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. And this one we see fulfilled in Matthew 27, 57 through 60. This is what it says. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, you guys, if you're Jesus, how do you make this happen? You're already dead. You're considered a criminal. What should be happening to Jesus' body as a criminal is it should be thrown into a place called Gehenna, it's the city dump. It's constantly on fire. You have wild dogs that are there. Jesus' body would have been torn apart from those wild dogs. So if Jesus is already dead, how could he fulfill the prophecy that a rich man would place Jesus, his dead body, into the tomb that the rich man had designed for himself? That's completely out of Jesus' control. But you guys, from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, we just witnessed over 14 prophecies take place that Jesus fulfilled. And keep in mind from the video earlier, just the fact that Jesus, if he would have only done eight prophecies, that's really improbable to happen. But we just looked at more than 14, and from Good Friday up in, on Good Friday alone, we looked at over 10 of those prophecies that Jesus fulfilled on a single day. And again, the majority of those things completely out of Jesus' control. Unbelievable, but true. But here's the thing, you guys. As unbelievable as it is that Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies, nearly 300 of them, there is one prophecy that is spoken of the Messiah that if, even if Jesus completed all of the other prophecies, if Jesus fulfilled all the other prophecies, if this one didn't come to pass, all the other ones wouldn't have mattered. As unbelievable and true as they are, this one had to happen. And it's the prophecy that's found in Psalm 16, verse 10. And it says, For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You guys, it's the prophecy that would be fulfilled three days later. The, the prophecy that proves that Jesus defeated uh, sin, death, and grave when he rose again from the dead, the prophecy that the Messiah would again resurrect. You guys, I am so glad 
that I serve a God who is a promise maker and a promise keeper. I'm so glad that I serve a God that he said thousands of years ago that he would send signs that would prove to us that he will never abandon us and he will never forsake us. That he always had a plan in mind to reconcile us back to him and that plan was going to be through his Messiah and it was going to be done in ways that we didn't have to question whether or not Jesus was real, whether or not he was God, whether or not he lived a sinless life. He did it in a way so that we could have the assurance to the hope that we have in Jesus. You guys, it is unbelievable that someone would go through all that pain and betrayal for you and for me, but it's true. It is unbelievable that someone could fulfill all those prophecies, but it's true. It's, it's unbelievable that someone would choose to go through all that pain and betrayal and rejection and mocking for their enemies, but it's true. It's unbelievable that someone would die in your place, but it's true. It's unbelievable that someone could rise again from the dead, but it's true. And it's unbelievable that that someone is God, but it's true. So maybe, just maybe, friends, it's time to start believing in the unbelievable. Because the amazing things that took place that we celebrate during this week, as unbelievable as they may be, every single one of them is true. And I, for one, am glad that they are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message. And God, we thank you so much for everything that we celebrate during this week. God, we thank you so much that you provided evidence for us to be able to have that assurance to the hope that we have that Jesus is exactly who he says that he is. The God who left his throne in heaven, put on the flesh of man, uh, took our rightful place, paying a debt that we deserve to pay by dying in our place, but then proving that he is God by rising again from the dead, proving to us once and for all that he is who he says that he is and that we do not have to fear death. God, there are so many things that are going on in this world right now, so many uncertain things, but God, I'm so glad that you are certain. That during this week, while so many, uh, while so much darkness seems to be surrounding our world right now, God, we get to celebrate on Sunday that the light of the world could not be defeated with darkness, that death was overcome, and life has been promised to all of us who call on the name of Jesus. God, we thank you so much that you so love the world that you gave your one and only son so that all who should believe in him, all those that would believe in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. God, we thank you for that love. God, we thank you for how you served us. And Father, we lift all this up in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.